Hello, welcome to MySpot Talks. I'm Chetan Shah, hosting a series of podcasts for the global events industry. In this week's episode, following the PM's announcement on Monday about the sector opening up and the economy opening up, we talk event safety and how testing may be a really great solution in terms of getting live events back on. We're joined by Ellis Arnett from Dependable Forces, Sarah Threffle from Brightspace Events, Matthew Franks from DRP, and James Bowen from Axiom Group. Uh, a few MySpeak messages. Um, the awards entries are now live, so if you are in the virtual space at all, uh, please do look at V Awards on, um, if you go to mysbookvirtualawards.com, you can see the entries and they are now live. And we hope 2nd of July, we will have a live event with a few hundred people and timing looks positive, right? Um, mm-hmm. 3rd of March, so next Wednesday, we're on Clubhouse with Michael Gibson from uh, Identity. Um, and so that's just a, every couple of weeks, we take a leader from the industry and just get to know them a little better. On the 10th of March, we've got the Roaring Twenties. So that was a comment made by one of the corporates that we could, after the Spanish flu, uh, replicate the, the Roaring 1920s in the 2020s. Again, fingers crossed. Um on that one, on the Roaring Twenties, we've got trends uh, from Orange Store and Cheerful 21st. We've also got a case study from Edmonton who held the NHL playoffs and a survey from the rep companies just talking about the international and what they're seeing. And finally, um, voice.mysper.com is our forum. Many of you would have joined because you're on here. So please do go. If you haven't updated your profile image or uh, company name, please do that. Um, much appreciated. It'd be nice to see faces and the companies you're from. You could do that if you click on the top right. Right. Without further ado, um, let's get into it. Let's do some free, few introductions. James, I'm going to come to you. Tell us your name, company, and one liner on your positivity or lack of or caution after the PM announcement on uh, Monday. Good afternoon, all. Nice to meet you. Um, yeah, I'm James Bone. I work for a casing group. We're Europe's largest healthcare staffing provider. And yeah, I'm definitely feeling positive after Monday. You know, I'm sure as per you know, some of the earlier comments, there'll be some missteps along the way. But yeah, I think the direction of travel now is, is universally positive. So an exciting time to, to come together. Thanks, James. Um, Ellis. Hi, I'm Ellis from Dependable Forces. We're a health and safety um, events company that specialise in uh all things safety, but now currently managing a lot of COVID secure events with testing and COVID compliance officers. Thanks, Ellis. Uh, Sarah? Hi, I'm Sarah Threlfall from Brightspace Events, and I'm uh, an events consultant um, currently specialising in, in COVID safe frameworks and risk assessment. Um, I'm going to pinch a line from some a discussion on my LinkedIn um, where somebody said, oh, it sounds like if we're cautious, we can be optimistic as opposed to being cautiously optimistic. So I quite liked that. That's how I feel. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. And uh, last but not least, Matthew. Hello, everyone. I'm Matt Franks from DRP Group. I'm director of events here. Um, I think I'm very optimistic about the news from Monday and excited about what we can all do to shape the future of events because it will be different and we have an amazing opportunity to redefine it um, and and to create better experiences. Thanks, Matt. Um, Okay, so the setting for this was... um, I firmly believe that testing was going to be a big part of every conversation about getting a live event back together in some shape or form. Um, And actually, I 
my first question is, is that still the case, given how the government have positioned the reopening of all economy is actually not so much about trying to get rid of COVID, but also, but more about managing COVID. So is it that we're just going to manage and live with COVID and is testing one part of it or, or not? So I'm going to generally ask the guys, and, and actually I'm going to come to the first, because obviously the other chaps have a keen interest in testing being a big part of the conversation. But Matt, I'm coming to you first. Do you see testing as a fundamental part as, as F&B or toilets or whatever else could be a part of a or F, um, a part of any event do you think testing in the in the short term is going to be part and parcel of every meaningful numbered event I think short term and by short term probably a matter of months um, yes I do um, I think because it's all about building trust and confidence not everybody will choose to be vaccinated and they will still pose risk not 100% immune even if you are vaccinated and it's an added measure the same way that you're making measures with health and safety and creating those right environments and in order to get everything moving again it's all about trust and confidence so I think providing we do it well and it's non-invasive um, and it's not cost prohibitive to do so then i think it plays its part in the short term to get us moving yeah uh sarah what, what's your thoughts yeah I, th I think i'm with matt i mean i've i've spent this morning in the the roadmap document from the government and and testing's mentioned a lot in there as part of the you know subject to um caveats that they put in there um, and it's certainly going to be a big part of the pilot events by the sounds of it when they start running those in sort of April, May time. Um, plus, I think there's there's an expectation, there's almost a public expectation that they will be tested. And if that doesn't happen, you know, regardless of actually the risk assessment and whether it's necessary. But if it doesn't happen, then you you could start to have people not trust, as Matt was saying, not trust what you're doing and think, well, why aren't you testing me? You know, I was expecting to get tested. Um, and a sort of mental safety point as well there is that, you know, people will feel a lot more happier and a lot confident if they see that there's a testing protocol in place. So I, I can definitely see it, yeah, forming a, a big part. I don't think it will last forever. I don't think, you know, in five years time we'll be testing. Um, but I, I do think certainly for the next six months to a year, it will probably be a big part of certainly big, big events, definitely. And Sarah, sorry, just to expand on your point, we, we test already at the moment for our studios here, and mm. it just provides that level of reassurance. You've still got yeah. space and space that you've got to enforce, but people just take a bit of confidence that you're looking after them. And it's that safety thing. If you think back to our hierarchy of needs, we all want to feel like we're being looked after. Yeah, good point. Um, James, let's go, let's go to ground floor on testing. Um, Tell us the two types of tests that are commonly known, lateral flow, I believe is the term, and PCR. Tell us about those two. What are the, what's the difference between them and what's the success of them and how are they applied and what are, what are the kind of key differences between those two types of tests? And is there a third one that I don't know of? Yeah, no, it's a great question and uh, I'll, I'll try and answer it as succinctly as possible. So the PCR test, the polymerase chain reaction test, that's the one that we've heard about all the way through the last eight, nine months since COVID started. It's the test that you typically get if you go to an NHS test site and it's the one that's often referred to in the press as gold standard. Uh, and indeed it is, you know, it's a highly accurate, highly sensitive test that can return, you know, up to 99% plus uh, accuracy and sensitivity in determining whether one's got the COVID virus or not. 
but it does have its limitations. It's too costly for, for the use that we're talking about. I mean, it's still, you know, typically £100 plus per test, which is, I think, something that's cost prohibitive. Um, it's still taking it 24 to 48 hours, if not longer, to turn it around. It's got to go off to a laboratory, etc. So it's not, I don't think, fit for purpose for real world testing. So what one has been looking for is something that can be deployed quickly and cost effectively into the event space in this case. Um, and that gives a, a reasonable degree of certainty that one is COVID free. Now, the latest incarnation of the lateral flow tests, there are three that the government approve as being suitably accurate and suitably sensitive to use. And we use all three of those, not all lateral flow tests are the same, to be clear. Now, they give in if they're done right under the right supervision and done in the correct way by people, they're around about 94 percent able to pick up people who are positive, um, which is, you know, it's knocking on the door of the PCR, but it's giving a test within you know, 10 to 15 minutes, which is practical for getting people into events. And, you know, cost per test is sub £10. So, you know, it's, it's a real game changer, I think. Uh, Ellis, thank you for that, James. Um, Ellis, can um, I just jump in with a question on that one, James? The, sure. um, the studies that the other bits and pieces I've seen say that they're, they're also a, li they're a little bit wary about the false negatives though so yeah. how does it's not quite a sort of you are guaranteeing that your event is no. then 99 percent free are you no completely not i mean no, no i think the whole sort of you know taking the concept to the higher level about you know are we aiming for covid zero i don't think we are across the country it's covid mitigation yeah. and i think this is what these tests offer it brings the level down in conjunction with all of the other things that ellis may talk about and others uh, to a, a, a risk level that's that's, that's acceptable now, a further just very brief point is that they you know that the accuracy of them and their sensitivity is depending on how they're used and they do need, I think, guidance and, and proper use to be able to deliver that kind of gold standard accuracy. And I think that's whether there is a little bit of negative press around them. If people are using them themselves uh, in a way that's non-compliant, they can deliver false negatives. We do need to make sure that they're used in a sensible, uh, a sensible way. Uh, Alex, um, um, the difference between PCR and, James, um, and lateral flow, James, is kind of gone through in terms of the percentage and you kind of think okay well uh, lateral flow is the way to go but there is a difference between what they're actually testing as well right so they're not they're not you're not actually comparing like for like so from what i understand is is the the, the pcr also tests before you're contagious or it's it's, it's actually testing your body because the the lateral flow may not pick it up at the time you test but PCR picks up earlier if it's in your system. Ellis, is that correct? Or what's your thoughts? Yeah, so James is probably a lot more qualified, but I'm, I'm, my understanding is all to do with the viral load, which is available yeah. at the time of test. Now, the difficulty you have is, is whether you're doing a PCR or lateral flow or whatever testing system you're using, it's about the competency of the tester. And it's really important now when we look at who's doing the test, actually they're doing the test correctly because uh, what you find is that the percentages dramatically drop down to around about 60% if the wrong person's actually delivering the test. Um, and then that's that's always going to be the fear, isn't it? And um, I suppose the, the method that we looked at at DF was that we'd always use competent, qualified medics, you know, and, and make sure that the people that are undertaking the test are the most qualified people out there. Uh, because otherwise, um, it, you know, you, you're not going to be hitting those percentages that you want to. But the important thing is, is that you don't rely on that. Um, and currently, the measures and the COVID compliance still needs to be in place, whether they have a test or not. Um, and someone actually brought up a really interesting question on the um, on the chat about the 90 day period. 
uh, from having a positive um, COVID uh, test, and then you can't take collateral flow for 90 days. So, you know, th there are there are lots of impacts that you know testing can only be one solution, and and ultimately when we look at COVID compliance, it's about having the broader uh impacts that you can have with good covid control measures so uh testing is just one piece or one control in in how we tackle um the covid pandemic at the minute okay well let's let's come back to that in a second um james just to so alice said maybe you're better placed to understand what is the difference of the two tests in terms of when they're testing you as in in, in terms of where the infection might be in terms of its time horizon what's the difference well, actually, the, the, the crossover between detection rate um, for the PCR and the lateral flow test in the early phase of the virus are virtually like for like. The ability to detect grows up until you've got that kind of peak viral load. So that would be when you're highly symptomatic if you're going to show symptoms or you've got a peak viral load within you unwittingly and unknown to you because you're, you're asymptomatic. And that's the point where the uh, PCR test will have about a 99% ability to pick up. And this test, the lateral flow test, if done right, around about 94%. The interesting thing is well, then what happens afterwards, because that's when you really want to detect people when they're able to be uh, passing the, the virus on. What the PCR does, it's almost a victim of its own success then, in that it's so sensitive, it can continue to detect viral load for weeks and sometimes months after you've had COVID-19. So you can return, and this is, you know, that many, many people have fallen foul of this, you can return a positive PCR test, even though you're, you're weeks and months past it, whereas the lateral flow tests are very kind of defined in that moment. So, you know, that there, there are, you know, reasons to use both. Um, but I think, you know, within, within the sector we're talking about, um, you know, I, I think lateral flow testing, potentially with some kind of repeatability, maybe one test taken prior to attending a big event, and then maybe one as you attend the event itself, you know, the cost of it allows that to happen and i think using that kind of double testing methodology takes out some of the uh, uncertainty that it uh, it has okay and final question just on and i know there's questions coming which we will get to so please do keep them coming into the chat what uh, what's on the horizon for just uh, testing and what, what do you think is going to come into market anything that you know that's going to be yeah. vastly different to what we have now in the next few months yeah, there's some really there's some really cool stuff coming to market in in the next few weeks and months that will uh, maybe move things away from the kind of nasal swab that people don't understandably you know like. Um, so we've certainly evolved it now to a point where the current tests don't require that very invasive swab. You can just do the very light touch nasal swab, which is very easy to do and gives a good customer experience. I mean, nobody wants to go along to a fun you know corporate event or, or otherwise and feel like they're going into a kind of a you know a medical zone. Um, but the tests that are coming down the line, uh, you know, a saliva. Based or mouthwash based, which is even better. Where you just take a, you know, a little swig of the uh, of the solution, rinse it around, spit it out, and then and then the test is done on that. Sorry, just, um, I'm just in a webinar, so let me just come out of it. Oh, Sorry. Oh, um, no, it's fine. It's, no, it's only um, a learning one. Only, <laughs> Catherine. This could save your life, darling. Oh dear. <laughs> Just I do, do apologise, everybody. No. Sorry, sorry. Well, but I've, I've got to take a call. Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, there's some, some cool stuff coming down, you know, which, which is all about, I think, enhancing the user experience, because I think there's a debate here, isn't there, about whether the government will mandate testing as part of a, an event, you know, or, or a large gathering, or whether it will be the case that it's done voluntarily and it will be part of a confidence building thing to get more people to go along. And I think the, the easier it is and uh, to, to, to have people administer those and the better the customer experience, I think the more likely in both scenarios that people will comply with it. 
Um, and so the mouthwash kind of things that you, these examples you just said, are they weeks, months, uh, six months, years away? What are we looking I at? Weeks. I mean, the, some of the saliva tests now are going through their final stage CE approval, um, which is the European Union, you know, mark of, of approval that they're good to go to market. So um, there's some good testing going on at the moment where they're using those in conjunction with lateral flow and PCR to cross validate them all to make sure that they're offering not just a good experience, but a good uh, accuracy and sensitivity as well. So I would expect you to see those uh, in, in early March. James, will they, will they still be? Oh. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Classic. Um, will they still have to be delivered under the UCAS registration system? So they, they still have to be delivered by a, because there was yes. a question there about delivering testing by qualified. No, there's a good point that Sarah raises there about the fact you know, that the whole testing market, the whole kind of COVID market got a little bit wild west, um, you know, with you know anyone sort of uh, who had a, an eye on a buck being, being candid, sort of, you know, jumping in and seeing what they could do. And I think the government now have, have made providers like ourselves and Alice, et cetera, et cetera, go through uh, what's called the UCAS accreditation, which is the body that uh, approves uh, uh, COVID testing, be it point of care or, or laboratory, and indeed to make sure that the tests that are being used are valid uh, as well. So that will that will continue to be the case, Sarah, for the uh, saliva and mouthwash okay. uh, variants. Okay, Jane, so sorry. go ahead. Sorry, do, do you have any idea on what the the price of the mouthwash is going to be in terms of not the exact price, but how it compares to the tests that are sub ten pounds at the moment? Because it will make it more accessible. I think so. I mean, the the, the 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 cost is coming down and down and down all of the time. You know, the cost of the lateral flow tests almost on a weekly basis is being squeezed down as, as supply yeah. chains get more efficient delivering. Um, the early indications are that probably the saliva ones would come to market with a price point of a, you know, a couple of pounds per test more, um, just because of the you know, the fact they're novel and need to market and there's some R and D costs to pay down. But I yeah. don't think that, that would last. I think that the pricing will probably come to a, a point of parity quite quickly. Okay. Okay, so it's been mentioned, Matt, I'm going to stay with you. It's been mentioned a few times um, about that the testing is just one aspect of this whole process of having a safe event, um, and a pretty big one. But uh, And there's a few, a few questions coming in in that. How, how do people do this in terms of um, if you have an event, you've got a few hundred people coming, um, who would administer these tests? How could we do it safely? If... If, if they're kind of leaving it to people to do it themselves, how, how, does that impact the um, safety of the event? Um, how are you doing it at your studio currently? Yeah, so um, I may not have the science behind all of that, but all I can tell you is the advice that we were given was for us to administer them with trained, competent individuals. So we've re all received training and it was quite straightforward from some clinicians. Um, and our team administer them, you get uh, more chance of a more accurate reading. And it's actually less invasive and it feels a lot better. When you start doing it yourself, you end up choking all sorts of things. So when someone does it for you, whilst it feels awkward to begin with, you quickly get past it. We've uh, created an environment where we've built pods because privacy is really important and you're in it for all of a couple of minutes. But we've done things like you've got a bit of background music. The biggest thing for me is around the communication. So we We've done some really cool like, animated videos that go out up front and a PDF that goes out up front because people want to know what to expect. And I think my advice to anybody that's bringing anybody to an event and you're planning to do testing, you've got to take people on that journey in advance because not knowing is what causes apprehension and causes the biggest issues. Um, but then in terms of how we're doing it, it's a, it's a great process at the moment. There's a holding area. Everyone wears medical grade face coverings. 
um, that you're given on arrival. It's a holding area and then you get brought through to a pod. Um, you do your test and then you get uh, moved to a waiting area while we wait for your results to come through. It takes a bit of admin um, and there's a legal responsibility for you to upload that information as well to the PHE website. Um, and there's some standard forms that most companies who are providing you that the lateral flow tests will give you. Um, but it is quite straightforward. And there's some apps that people try and charge you extra money for to make it feel like a better experience. It's not necessary, if I'm honest. You keep it clean and simple. Um, but it is thinking around what are you doing with everybody once you've got them through that testing process? What's their experience? Where are you holding them? How are you communicating? And then you did a survey um, about whether people prefer to do it, is that right, themselves or what was the results of that? Yeah, so so um, we're doing testing now since January and around probably 90%, I'd say, have all said it's definitely better when someone administers it for you. We're doing a thousand tests a month at the moment through our studios and interestingly, only three people have been uh, tested positive, uh, which is a lot lower than we thought. Um, mm -hmm. All of them were asymptomatic which is really interesting because they're merrily coming in and like ready to do a day's work. Um, and then lo and behold, they've got COVID and they're sent home. But you also do need to think around what happens if someone tests positive? What are you doing? Because you don't want big red like alarm bells ringing and everybody freaking out. So um, we built um, a restricted access area, not built, we just created it. So everyone comes in and out from our testing centre outside. And if anyone wants to see, I can share videos with you of what we've done. Um, and then if someone is positive and they're a presenter, imagine a CEO, what, it would have a bigger impact if you had to communicate suddenly that they couldn't do a broadcast in 20 minutes time because they tested positive for COVID. So you have to think through that. And we've got um, a restricted access area where they can go in, no crew go in there and it's all a remote broadcast, but it feels the same. So it's just thinking through what those steps are. Yeah, Sarah, you were nodding your head about comms and being a part of it. What, what else would you say in terms of the event planner journey to to make all of this flow as smoothly as possible. Yeah, I mean, this is it's so important that all of these conversations are had in advance instead of, you know, frantically trying to backpedal whilst you're on site and things are happening. Um, I mean, traditionally in events, health and safety, I'm just going to say it, it kind of ends up as the bottom of the to-do list and it's the last thing you do before you go on site and it's a bit of a, okay, quick, we're, we're on, that's it, there's my risk assessment. Um, and that's not the right way to do any sort of health and safety let alone something that is so huge and such a massive culture change it's such a different way of working and everybody in the organization it's new to everybody um, so the the planning for any kind of covid measures has to start right at the beginning to completely redesign what we're doing and how we're doing it and um, look at every aspect and how it can be improved or, or weaved into the whole approach instead of, you know, stamping measures on at the last minute. Um, I mean, when we were having the, the pre-chat, Ellis was talking about how they're talking in their um, meetings about, well, we're doing this testing zone. How can we build it into the event process? So, you know, how can we add some content maybe that they could even start watching or some brand engagement that can happen? so that it doesn't feel quite so obvious about what's what's happening. So I think the, and the comms underpins all of that. So as soon as you start having the measures being discussed, the more communication you can do, the better. You know, the general rule is over communicate um, and, and people will be, be happier. And also, you know, the, 
the, the double impact of what do you do if you get a positive result? So you've got the how do we physically deal with a potentially infectious person question, but you've also got the, the element of having to make the attendee aware that if they come to the event or the studio, they will be tested. And if that test is positive, they will be required to isolate. And, you know, just just to bring that home to them, because they are taking it potentially a risk, you know, that they might have to cancel plans or work or, or whatever in the future. So that needs to be part of the explanation as well ahead of time. Yeah, I was going to say that just to jump in there, obviously, we've been lucky enough to run um, a few events now um, before Christmas. And the one thing that we realised very early on is that if you don't plan properly, your, your event's going to likely fail in regards to COVID compliance. And the one thing we get across very early on to our clients when we're setting up these COVID secure measures is that we need to be on site, we need to come and visit your site, and we need mm -hmm. to make sure your venue is suitable before you even think about your you know your event because the important thing is is the pre-planning you know and and making sure that everything is in place and actually the venue is suitable for the number of people that you want there and also setting up your pre-testing areas um, and, and making sure that you can actually implement all the control measures that are required for it to be compliant um, and going on from what Sarah said we've run events where we've had positive tests um, and there are a lot of people out there on the market now that are offering COVID support. But what you need to remember is, is that the best COVID support is the support that's going to be there when it's going wrong. Uh, and when you do get a positive test and, and, you know, we are in a pandemic, so you're likely to get positive tests. So it's about how you manage that and, and the processes that you had in place. So one of the events we did, we actually had a car set up. We had an isolation suite and we actually removed uh, positive tests. Um, we took them home and we gave them all the guidance and, it you know, we made sure that they were supported through that process because it's very easy when someone tests positive just to say well sorry you're not allowed in and this is your problem you know and, and as an event organizer it's important that you you know look after the people that are going to come to your event and make sure that you know you've got those plans and provisions in place because um you don't want that panic then suddenly go oh we have got a positive and no one really knows what to do so again that's it's really important that you get competent people to support you yeah, I mean, and I the think... budget to do it, you know, to authorise cars and taxis or, or whatever the solution is, you know, it needs to have been discussed at the point where someone with enough um, budgetary influence can say, yes, this is what we're going to do and here's the money for it. Yeah, good good point, Sarah. Um, so, Ellis, there's a couple of questions here. So here's your, here's your chance to tell us what you can help because I do feel like this isn't something you can just kind of navigate in-house with just some good thought i mean event professionals are very uh resourceful um but i think this is an area that needs expertise especially at these times uh what can you what can companies like yours do to support an event brief that's got people coming just tell us you know top line what are your services that that can be offered well, I suppose most importantly, it's the pre-planning. So it's getting in place, coming to visit site and getting clients to understand what they can and actually what they can't deliver. Um, and then giving them the support that's required to actually run them through the event and make sure that the compliance is there and the support and the, the, the kind of backings there to make sure that all the risk assessments that have been completed actually can be seen through. Uh, one thing I see in the safety industry all the time, and I've, I've been in the safety and fire industry for the last 20 years, is that 
people were very good at writing down what they should do, but actually when it comes to delivering it, it's a different thing. And, and what we do as an organisation, actually, we deliver on our promises. And, and it's about using the right people. So within dependable courses, we only use first responders. So we use firefighters, paramedics. Um, and, you know, these people are trained to deal with dynamic situations. So a positive COVID test to a, a frontline paramedic and firefighter really isn't a, a major issue, something that they, they deal with day in, day out currently. Um, so they've got the skill set and the ability to deal with that. So it's about getting the right people to support you. Um, and and it, again, it does come to budget. You know, unfortunately, when it comes to these things, uh, cheapest is not always the best. And, and that's why, you know, the government brought in the UCAS um, accreditation process uh, to make sure that actually businesses are getting the right support and getting the right people rather than, you know, someone just putting on a jacket and saying they're a COVID marshal. Yeah, James. Uh, similar, similar offering from your your perspective. What what do you what can you provide for the event planners? Yeah, so it's a lot of crossover with Alice and Echo. The sentiment, really. I mean, you know, where where else is using first responders? We typically are using nurses, but you know, the the principle is is the same. Uh, I think what we we can offer is, you know, nobody's an expert in COVID. I mean, that, that's the thing. This is all new to us, relative, isn't it? It's only nine months, ten months that it's been with us. So, uh, you know, nobody can claim to know the absolute gold standard way of doing it. But what we have been doing uh, is providing mass testing to uh, universities, local government, uh, and and corporates for the last maybe six or seven months. We've We've carried out hundreds of thousands of, of, of lateral flow tests in, in, in you know, big settings, uh, notably kind of university settings to enable the free flow of students across the country, you know, at Christmas and that sort of thing. So that point about bringing people on the journey is important because when we were testing students at Christmas, if they got a positive test, it meant they couldn't go home to their, yeah. their families, you know. So that's a very difficult one to manage because there wasn't really a vested interest in the students in, 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 in arguably doing the right thing. So the kind of education piece and the, 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 the pre-planning, as you're saying, uh, I agree, it's as, as important if not as more important than the actual delivery on the on the day okay um i want to i'm going to take a question here that's about a thousand person example um and i guess whether it's a thousand or a few hundred because to have the infrastructure um the budget the people the the holding zones i mean all of that needs to be considered right well uh, matt what what do you think in terms of a bit large scale if we are trying to get meaningful numbers for events how how are you going to navigate this i i think there are many questions you've got to ask yourself first of all do you need a thousand people there all together at exactly the same time yeah. can you stagger the arrival process can you think about people's personalized journey you know for me before covid we had an uptake of delegates asking us to say well i'm happy to come to some sessions but then i want to pick my own sessions in the afternoon so uh, you're moving away from this kind of predicted agenda so can you take advantage of that and, and rather than get a thousand people all in one go can you stagger it throughout the day that should be your first consideration if the answer is no and we have to get a thousand people all together then actually you need to start thinking differently about spaces. So do you use outdoor venues? Is that practical? Is it achievable? You know, what are your other options? Can you do testing in cars? So people are all coming in in cars and those that are then on public transport, there's less requirement of space to test people. Um, but when we were looking to do 500 people, we were looking to do it all through cars. So everyone would arrive and they come through a bay, they get tested and they wait in their car and we could broadcast some information to them if necessary. Um, but, you know, it all comes down to cost because that's obviously very costly, too. So once you've done that, um, what are you hoping to do with those thousand people and what other 
issues have you created for yourself once you've got a thousand people in the venue? Do you have to start thinking around how you move them and the rotations and things like that? Yeah. Well, one of the um, things takes, that. Sorry, Sorry Matt, what was that? It's also the time it takes to get a thousand people through. If you want everyone to start at 10 a.m., mm. you know, you need vast amount of space to get everyone through in a realistic time. Otherwise, you'll be starting at 5 a.m. <laughs> One of the things that I'm wondering if it, it might come into play is um, regional testing networks where people can go and get their PCR done ahead of time. So that you, you know, depending on your overall risk assessment, you say, actually, we can do enough with this to not need lateral flow tests if, you know, we can get people uh, PCR tested 24 hours, you know, if we're in a point where we can get a quick enough turnaround. Um, whether it would be a case of, you know, contracting with uh, either private companies or, or retailers like Boots, I think, uh, are doing them and saying to your delegates, well, here's your um, here's the network that we're using for your PCR tests. Please go in and here's a, a code or a QR code or something. And then, you know, so that you, you've actually done a, a big bulk of that screening before the event. Um, and, and then people have maybe a code on their phone or some kind of uh, tech solution that says, yep, you know, I'm done. I can come in because I think realistically a thousand people all trying to do lateral flow tests. It would work for multi-day events, I think, wouldn't it? You know, the time investment and the money investment might be more worth it for festivals or something that's going to run over two or three days. Or if it's a real high value product that you're trying to sell or, or whatever. But it's going to be quite a, a limited number where where the the time and money that you'd need to do a thousand lateral flow tests is is reasonably practicable and relevant to what you're doing. So I think yeah, I, I, I'm interested to know whether a network arrangement might come in into play so that the testing's done in advance, not relying so much on on site. I don't know if I could maybe pick up on that. I, mean, I think it, we've been looking at that idea of regionalised testing. I think it makes sense, doesn't it? Because, you know, you push that kind of out in a spider's web and people are arriving with some proof of testing. Mm. Even if I it's think, not yeah. all of them, even if it's just 50% uh, and uh, a sorted kind of thing. I tell you, but I mean, I'm, I'm traveling with work this week and uh, I've got to go abroad for a few days. So I, I took a PCR test locally uh, yesterday and I've got a QR code to say that I'm fortunately negative. It just came back this morning. Um, it cost me £185. Uh, to achieve that and i think that's that's the problem of using yeah. a, a localized pcr network now you could do a localized uh, uh you know lateral flow network uh, again linking into some kind of uh, proof but my concern with the pcr is that um a it's taking two days to come back and i'm not convinced that a thousand person event could weather that level of, of, of expense and just um... and also plan for the emergency now that's the important thing you can have a third thousand person event you can do all the pre-planning the testing but it's also if someone turns up and they do test positive or you've also got to accept that people may be at the event and start to develop symptoms mm. and what processes and what systems do you have in place to manage that? You know, so it's important that, you know, we, we found it very much when we go through the starting phase, talking to clients and, you know, that they want to try and keep it down to the minimal numbers. But what we have to explain to them is, well, what happens if something goes wrong? What happens if we have a positive test? What happens if we have to deal with someone displaying symptoms? You know, that will take a compliance officer completely out of the, you know, out of the availability. So it's important that when you're planning and having these big events is that you've got the resources to deal with um, events that could happen during the event as well. 
Yeah. And I think I just saw a question bouncing about, you know, are the lateral flow tests accurate enough for, for mass events? Um, you know, you'd expect me to say this given given the belief in them, but I, I do genuinely believe so if used in the right way. Uh, I mean, kind of point, you know, cost notwithstanding, even if we were to look at PCR testing in advance, um, you know, the PCR test is only as good as the day it's done. So let's say you have it done three or four days before yeah. the event. By the time four days hence comes, you could have been in the, in the, in the medium time, uh, you know, picked, picked it up. So, you know, there is no such thing as a guarantee, sadly. And if everyone's looking for a, a completely COVID-free uh, event guaranteed, then then that's not going to happen, uh, you know, in, in the short term. It's about an acceptable and, and minimised risk, I think, that everybody uh, buys into. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a follow-up question here in something we discussed about liability and, and responsibility. Where... Where in your minds do you see, uh, Matt, where do you see the responsibility? Uh, so say you've put on an event for a client, you've put in the measures for testing, et cetera, but where, where does the legal or I don't know which other responsibilities there are, but where does the, where does the, where does it sit? Really difficult question, isn't it? Because no one wants to accept liability for it, to be honest, because you'll try and trace it all the way back down, especially if someone, you know, comes in and they've tested negative, but in fact, they were positive. Um, and then you get an outbreak. Um, I, I think that what we'll see is a lot of disclaimers because no one wants to accept responsibility. But the bigger question is around brand reputation and um, the risk that it has to an employer as well, particularly if it's an internal event. Um, so I'm not sure that I have the exact answer to that at the moment, but everybody's treading with caution and thinking that through around who my audience and what would it mean if, if something happened. And also, I guess the other way that you get a positive result and actually they're negative, but they've had to, whatever, incur losses because they've travelled or had to self-isolate, I guess. And um, I guess my, my, my answer to that would be it's a client responsibility. The client has to, like they do with every other aspect of a live event, have to take the responsibility and the decisions to go ahead and, and accept those risks. You do, depending on who your audience is, if, you know, if, if they guess and it's your choice to attend and it's a free will, you may choose it as part of your registration process, you pass that liability across. Alice, you were going to come in? The Health and Safety Work Act, if it's a workplace event and, you know, if we're putting on events, we have to ensure the health, safety and welfare of people who come to our events and we have a legal duty to do so under the associated regulations. So it's, you know, COVID's a workplace risk. It's reportable under RIDOR. Uh, it's something that needs to be managed as we manage all workplace risks, you know, and we have to be pragmatic, but we need to manage it so far as is reasonably practicable to ensure the safety of all persons um, who attend our event. So the important thing is, is that employers and event organizers understand that actually there is a legal responsibility to ensure the safety of people who attend events and that's why you know we have a legal duty to undertake suitable and sufficient risk assessments we have a legal duty to ensure that our fire safety provisions are there that our you know welfare provisions are there and you know that's all included with covid management it's making sure that actually uh, the overall safety plan and risk assessments um, put in place reasonable measures to reduce that risk to as low as is possible you know, and there's always a risk, isn't there, that um, we could run an event and there could be an outbreak or there could be, um, you know, a positive test or, you know, people might go away from an event and then come back to someone and say, well, hang on a minute, I think I caught COVID there. 
Um, but ultimately, if the event organizer and the client did all that was reasonably practicable and can demonstrate that and prove that with good mm. records and documentation and evidence, you know, it, it's going to be a lot more difficult for that person to then, you know, that liability to be brought through the courts of law or a civil liability case be brought upon them. But it's important that, you know, event organisers understand they do have that responsibility. And that's where using kind of recording it, making sure that we've got good risk assessments, good documentation, good evidence of what we're doing uh, and how we're doing it um, to provide some kind of liability and some support, you know, if something does go wrong. Yeah, thank you. I think that's Great answer. Can I just um, jump in please. on that point, just to ask Ellis really a question? Um, so with the overall um, risk assessment process, mm -hmm. is it right to say it's not always going to come out with testing as a required measure? Is, is there a circumstance when a risk assessment says, actually, because of the number of people and the space and the agenda, we don't, we don't need testing here. We've got enough in place. Yeah. That 100%. A, test, a testing system is a control measure. Now, ultimately, if the risk assessment can um, eliminate through other methods, then, you know, that, that there are going to be lots of options. You know, we have, you know, testing hasn't been available uh, throughout the pandemic. It's only recently that's become more available and it's more used because it is seen as a, a suitable control which can be used with others. Um, but, you know, when we think about risk management, it's about applying the most pragmatic control and the most realistic control. And, you know, it, it, it's looking at different options. Uh, and that's what health and safety is all about. It's about looking at different ways of managing risk. Um, and if we can reduce risk down to an acceptable level by using a different process or a different method, then, you know, that is uh, always an option. Um, the difficulty you have is, is that what we also now have to look at is best practice and guidance uh, and, you know, reading the, the roadmap and, and the testing is just so heavily um, impregnated within it that actually to go away from that, it's kind of you're going away from the norm. So, um, but if you can demonstrate that with good risk assessment, then totally, that, 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 you know, that, that's what risk assessment is all about. Let me follow up on that one, because it was a question that Richard Murphy asked earlier on. Um, James, I'm going to come to you about a vaccine passport. Is this is this a clear example of a, a mitigation that could could alleviate the need for testing? What's your stance on vaccine passports? Oh, uh, the, the, I, I, if only one could go to the pub and debate vaccine passports, <laughs> I think it would be a, a, a fascinating sort of hour. Um, yes, the principle of them, I think, is, is valid. Um, Take at the moment, though, you know, it, it, the, the the people who've been vaccinated are post 65s currently, post 55s and so on and so forth. So the people who are going to have vaccine passports, if they were available, first of all, would be the elderly who've, who've rightly so been prioritised for the vaccine. Now, of course, there is a plan to roll it out for all adults um, and that will happen in time. But there's an argument, is there not, that they're a slightly discriminatory um, tool in so much as that they're kind of, you know, favouring at the moment people who've kind of been, uh, uh, you know, vulnerable, and the people who you could argue who've borne the brunt of lockdown, you know, the twenty-somethings aren't going to be eligible for any form of vaccine passport, um, certainly not on a two-dose regime, you know, any time for many, many months to come. But I think you know the principle of them is, is an interesting one. But I think some form of testing, maybe, maybe it would be, you know, is it a hybrid of the both, where maybe you can demonstrate that you've either had 
had a vaccine or you've had COVID and therefore are immune or you've had a reasonably gold standard test and that either of those three elements could get you onto the site and you might have a combination of those. Um, but the tech exists clearly. And I think to Sarah's point about how do you do this in a way that doesn't have massive bottlenecks at events, um, that does play to that kind of localised thing, doesn't it, of being able to go to the event with a piece of paper or more likely, you know, a, a QR code and, and, and therefore make the whole flow into the into the event more, uh, more practical. Yeah, great point. Thanks, James. Uh, Matt, coming back to you, um, something we discussed is there's uh, a theme throughout this that testing is just one aspect um, what is some other technology that you've been seeing or hearing about that venues, et cetera, could be employing that makes the whole process, again, a little bit more safer? Um, Ellis may have more details on this as well, but I think some of the things we've been doing and some of the conversations we've been having with some venues are around ventilation. So obviously you've got foggers that are used and they're normally used to um, fog an entire room and then within 10 minutes it's safe to go into um you've got the uh self-sanitizing door handles and buttons that we're seeing everywhere now you've probably all seen them they're all popping up um obviously temperature screening there's infrared there's uv um lots of exhibition halls are talking around the uv light where actually once the hall is clear they put that on and it's meant to kill any bacteria that was in there from the day so you're almost resetting every day so there's lots of things um and actually the price for all of those things certainly in the last few months has come down dramatically so it's far more accessible it comes down to whether it's practical and what it's doing and what measures it's adding and how much it's mitigating those risks for you and i think there are uh, many variable factors that you need to consider so it comes down to that event safety plan and thinking it through up front but i guess the uh, venue that has taken the initiative to do all of these things is going to be far better placed to receive briefs and bookings if, if they've and as well as dmcs for international would you uh, agree i think so yeah and it's about being confident around how they communicate it too so we talked earlier around there's a perception i think probably more so than anything where you know venues that's the biggest reason you wouldn't go to an event because the venue's not ready I'm not sure that's entirely true and I've seen some fantastic things coming out of venues with all the measures they've been taking. Um, again, I think it's just how they're communicating. Mm. Is it possibly that, um, and I can totally understand this, that they've been focusing on what they're allowed to do, which is leisure. So all the risk assessment and all the stuff is, is tailored around how can I open my restaurant? How can I get my bar going? How can I get my terrace going? And because they can't, uh, they haven't really focus on events yet because I, I that's what I'm hoping anyway because certainly if I've been asking for risk assessments from venues they do come back as Ellis said very generic they do seem to be more focused on you know a, a single individual um, attendee and a traveler rather than a, um, a gathering yeah. um, so I'm hoping that now we have a roadmap now we have this uh, you know movement back to live events will become a specific risk assessment that's what i that's what i'd like to see from a hotel is can i see your event covid risk assessment not your general one you know yeah. and and then next step very soon after i've said yes okay let's go can i see the one for my event um which is something yeah. that hotels probably traditionally don't do you know they do do very generic risk assessments but actually we need to uh, you know have a more a higher expectation i think nowadays it's got to be collaborative now because more often than not it used to be you sent them a risk assessment and you never got anything back in return mm. now there's an expectation it needs to feed into one plan and one assessment yeah i think the, the problem is is when we look at risk management we look at the events industry we look at venues 
you know, everything is very generic. And, and ultimately, when we now look at what needs to be in place, it's about having the right people to actually understand the risk and, and assess their venue, you know, um, and, you know, printing it off the internet and putting your name on it and your your location isn't going to be the way forward. And, and what we also have to in, consider is the impact of your COVID measures. What other impacts do they have? So for your fire safety, your health and safety, your, your occupancy and so on. So it's really important that you get that kind of right because one in one hazard can impact so many others. Uh, and the interesting thing, what you were saying about all the control measures, the, all these control measures are great. And yes, they will reduce the risk. But what you have to also understand is if you have someone who's contagious and has COVID in your event and you're not socially distancing, you're not got face coverings and you're not following COVID compliance rules, there is risk. You know, so it, it's important that risk management goes all the way through. Um, and what, you know, at the minute, the, um, you know, reducing all these control measures is, is just not a viable option. We need to make sure that we maintain them until we can 100% guarantee that our events can be COVID secure. Um, because ultimately, if you just kind of do the easy wins, um, that then there's always a risk. And unfortunately, when we look at risk management and look at safety practice, the hardest part of it is people. Uh, and unfortunately with COVID, is it, it's going to be infectious between people. So it's really important you get that element right of how you can manage people within your venue, uh, within your event, to try and prevent that spread. Um, and and that's, that is a, a really difficult one to... Uh, one to manage and that's where you know things like COVID compliance officers and and having kind of good signage good education um and you know sometimes just reminding people of, the, of what the COVID compliance rules are uh, it's really important that you know we have that established because you could do a lot of hard work and then it can all fail because um you haven't prevented those people from interacting yeah, we've only got about a few minutes left. So any other questions do pop them into the chat. Um, Sarah, while we're waiting for anything else to come through, Sarah, something you said, which I quite liked is that we have all these challenges to overcome. But one of them is actually um, people are so used to being at home sitting on their bums. Um, how are we going to get them off their seats? To yeah, actually yeah, I, th I think there's a there's a real um, expectation or there will be um, a, a responsibility on event designers uh, to to give people a reason to to travel because you know what used to be a whole day out and a trip to London and 100 quid to go to a conference is now you know a couple of hours sat on your sofa um job done sort of thing so people will have liked that you know um, my husband hates working from home to begin with he's got really into the zone now he's like yeah I'm never going back to work ever again this is amazing and I think that you know after such a long period of time we are going to have to deliver some really smashing stuff that says this is worth your while um, and I think that again comes back to that start from the very beginning you know you, you you've got to plan with your event objectives in mind how can we do this safely instead of just you know doing what we've always done and expecting the same result so i've pinched this from someone and i hate it because i can't remember who i've pinched it from so if anyone wants to claim it please do put your hand up but somebody said really early on this is an opportunity or, or the need is to reinvent not recreate and i just think that really sums up what the opportunity is but what also we have to do to to really make this work 
um, is, is to reinvent what we're doing, give people a reason to attend um, and, and always be coming back to the objectives of the event, because how we used to achieve networking in the olden days is probably not going to be realistic for a, quite a while um you know just shoving people in a room and letting them get on with it which was effectively you know how we used to do it um it's going to need a lot more thought so yeah this is our chance to to reinvent how we work i think that's a brilliant point i mean just to be quick i mean we're, we're absolutely determined you know we've got a vested interest we've got a long service dinner coming up that's been postponed for many months we just want to get 150 people out and to do that and to have a great time and do it in a COVID secure way. So we're going to go out and we're going to do that. We've got a long-standing partner of ours, Alive Communications. Many of you will know them. They've been our events partner for 10 years. We're going to put it on. We're going to showcase it. We're going to do it properly, risk assess it, film the whole thing, make it look fantastic and push it out positively and say, the industry's back, hopefully. This is what we can do and get people to want to get off their sofas and to come down to London and have some fun again, I think. Well, when is that event? Well, <laughs> the art of the possible, but hopefully in May. Well, we would love to follow that and uh, to, you know, showcase that and amplify um, just how that all works. Uh, as with many other people on this call, um, we need case studies. We need good news stories. We also need the pitfalls and learning so that we can share it across the industry for the benefit of all of us. Um, a few minutes left, so I really thank, uh, I'd like to firstly thank the panel for all their time today. Um, obviously, James, I'm going to share the details for everyone. Um, James and Ellis obviously do provide services to help event planners, corporate planners to um, deliver testing, um, but much far more services beyond just the testing element has been has, has been a key theme to this is just one small aspect of the whole mitigation and risk assessment. Oh, speaking of risk assessment, Sarah is brilliant at actually taking an event planner's background and actually applying it for risk assessing events um, and has many years of experience doing that. So do contact Sarah and then Matt and his team. I mean, they've been doing such a lot. I mean, huge amount of live events week on week, um, actually. So they, they, they've actually got data and. Um, you know, if you've done one one off, that's fine. And but they're, they're doing it week in week out. So again, another good point of contact. And somebody's actually asked for any images, or that you may have that just supports kind of getting clients, um, clients' confidence back about how this is done and, and mm -hmm. the procedures. So if you can go to voice.mysbook.com, which is our forum, and post on there, then and if you're willing to let people use those images, etc., that would be great. Um, Got one quick question here that I'd like to take um, from Lucy. Um, I'm going to go to Matt. Uh, how do you see testing working for incentive if it's a UK incentive that doesn't in involve overseas travel? I mean, does that any different to anything else we've discussed? Would you see that? Um, is there a different slant on it if it's an incentive? Um, no, it depends how many people are going on it and whether or not it's practical to, to test once you're there or whether you do send a test out in advance and maybe have a call where you oversee the the, administrate, the administering of it. Um, but no, I don't think it's any different. Um, you would still want to test if it's yeah. appropriate to do so. Again, okay. you just the measures. Yeah, thank you, Matt. So thank you to the panel. Really appreciate your time today. Uh, we will continue because there's some more case studies coming up so this this topic will not be going away um, but at least it is a roadmap to getting back to live um, next week we have michael gidsman from identity group on clubhouse uh, on the 10th of march we've got the roaring 20 so do go to mustbeonit.com and click on our events page um, for details the v awards are open for entry 
And finally, the voice forum, voice.mysport.com. Please do put your images and your company names if you're on that forum. Um, I'd like to thank everyone uh, for coming and listening today. Have a great, safe rest of the week. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. We really hope you enjoyed those talks. And if so, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. To see what the next discussions are, please go to mustbeonit.com and click on Talks in the menu bar. To contact MySpot, please email us at info at or follow us on Instagram and Twitter.